Rolling. Welcome to a special edition of the Renegade Podcast. In partnership with Rescue RN, we give you Kickstart My Heart, a revolutionary approach to resuscitation and code blue to take nurses who don't just do what they're told from novice to ninja. In episode five, our special guest is Maggie Ortiz, critical care, cath lab, nurse educator, and CEO of Advocates for Nurses. We don't give people the tools and they want to learn. Nurses want to. Everyone sweats every two years like, oh gosh, we have to take that test. It's gonna be fine. Part of your job as a professional nurse is to say, I don't know how to do something and to own it. There is a difference between not knowing what you don't know and then not asking for what you need. Nailed it. Renegades. I was just going to say, Maggie, you're our guest, so you should go first, and then Susan should go after you. <laughs> okay. Susan, Susan will go last, not a worry. <laughs> Susan, you take a break, nurse. <laughs> so I've been a nurse for 23 years, ICU, ER, pre-op, PACU, endo, IR, cath lab, taught ACLS, BLS. When I had been a nurse for about 15 years, went to the board of nursing as an investigator. I was very policy-driven, had left the emergency room. And so this is the stuff that we're not going to keep. Some of it I don't want in. I do talk about my concerns about the Board of Nursing. But when I was there for a short period of time, like I was, I didn't, right? I didn't become that intimate until I was there and I wasn't given a choice. I went to national training and then I became very intimate with it. So I am, you know, a little, you know, like yourself, a unicorn in my little world because I have bedside experience. I was a civil expert, administrative expert. I came within that entity. I don't know any other investigator. Yeah. So I thought that Maggie would be invaluable to kickstart this, this summit because one thing she knows back and forth, and if she doesn't know it, she knows where to find it and can kind of into it from knowing the nurse practice act so well is what do nurses need to know to protect themselves? Like if your hospital is not preparing you, to run a cold code blue or do the very basic, you know, call for help, start CPR, use electricity. Like if, if they don't know that they're obligated to be able to do that, <laughs> like, and if your management or your administration isn't training you, well, it's not kind of on you. I mean, she, but you can speak more to that, Maggie. So Susan, tell Maggie, 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 Susan, Susan, why don't you tell Maggie while we're all here? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can just start this whole thing. Let's go. Well, no, I, I'm just uh, listening with such intrigue. And Maggie, I've very much been looking forward to our conversation today because um, like you, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of what we're sick and tired of. And and, and the list is long, but you have your niche, right? The, the list is very long. I mean, we've discussed that in many of these podcasts. I have my niche, you have yours, and mine happens to be cardiac arrest response. Very specifically, in-hospital cardiac arrest response is my specialty. I, too, my background in nursing was trauma, emergency, some cardiovascular care that I've done. I've done, I have my paramedic license. I've done some flight. I've been the director of the American Heart Association for a large healthcare system for the last 10 years. I'm now the resuscitation education manager for a big healthcare system. Um, all that is a whole lot to say about me, what I'm sick and tired of. And that is the fact that we've been talking for the past 1800 years about the fact that our codes suck still today as they did back in the 1800s. And I don't think it's really rocket science to fix it. In fact, I think it's far less than that. I think it's super duper easy. And no matter how I word it, no matter how I say it, no matter how I build it, this is, a, you know, pushing the rock uphill to, to have the opportunity for nurses to get the training that they're asking for. And this is, this means going beyond the minimal standard of, you know, our once every two years, you, you said you're an instructor. I'm also BLS, ACLS, PALS instructor, have been for years. We all know that that's not enough. We, we know it. We're not seeing what we need to see as our outcomes clinically, period. We're not seeing, I, I listen, and I'm not going to dog anybody who is getting the great outcome. So hallelujah, amen, and join our conversation. <laughs> join us because we, like you said, it's not all, you know, bad. We're not generalizing, but in general, 
<laughs> it is the code blue practice is the number one most requested educational intervention by nurses around the world. They might get a random mock code bomb where they feel stupid and put upon and, and, and like, if you don't fail me now, well, of course they're going to fail me now. If you put me on the spot like that. And if you don't happen to be on that unit at that day, at that point in time, then you don't get the benefit of that practice. And many hospitals around the country and the world have come up with their, with their idea of how to make this better. In my findings, it's not standardized. It's not consistent. It's, it's not enough. And so that's what we're here for. I created a program a handful of years ago now, on nearly a decade. I've been doing what I call code prep, and it is a code preparation program. It's, it's pretty simple. I mean, we definitely, we talk about mindset first, and that's kind of Maggie, the outline of this conversation and the same outline we've used um, with every one of our guests. Sometimes we get to all the points. Sometimes we get stuck on one or two of them, and that's okay. And, and I cannot really wait for to dig into this with you because I've broken into, you know, in my doctoral work, I've talked about accreditation standards and, you know, the minimum, again, the minimum, minimum, what do they have to have uh, in order to, to function as a hospital in, in not only our country, but around the world? And are we meeting that just by the skin of our teeth? So we're here to talk to different nurses from do, uh, through different lenses. We've spoken with OB nurses, OR, an OR nurse, a United States Air Force flight nurse, a rapid response nurse, a travel nurse. Oh, that was our travel. Neuromed surge. Travel neuromed surge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we often talk about the hospital in our cool in our cool show here as, as being a hamburger. So ICU being the top bun, ER being the bottom bun, and everything, the hamburger in the middle. And uh, in, in what does it look like? What does it look like through your lens? What does it look through mine? So you, as a clinician, you've responded to codes throughout your career, I'm certain. You also will have an opinion on the mindset, which is the first topic of, of where we begin, the mindset. How do you feel about Code Blue? And, and it could be personal, your, your personal training, how you felt when you were a new nurse, how you felt when you left the bedside that it was going. How did you feel about your training? Was it adequate? And then, and then the other pieces really kind of just fall into place. I mean, the whole premise is, can we, as the however many millions of nurses we are right now, actually very confidently recognize the problem call for help, begin compressions, and use our electricity without fail, like ordering pizza, like not a big deal. And the answer is, and... no, we can't. <laughs> no, we can't. Nope. And then do we, but do we practice all the time? And... Nope. No, that's we don't. That's why we're here. And that's why we're here. So, so that's, that's the, that's the summary of um, code prep is something that I have been doing locally for nearly a decade. And I've trained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nurses. I've trained coaches. They love it. Um, it's it's a little tricky getting leadership, you know, to allocate resources for something that's needed. Um, so, needed I don't know. for nurses. Needed um, for nurses. Heaven forbid we do that. Heaven you know what? Forbid. That to that point, the common theme between what the two of you do, which I love, is Susan's uh, thesis that she did. And correct me if I'm saying that wrong. It wasn't about training. It was about how do how can we get nurses to feel like they're confident that they're capable so they don't go home feeling like there's something i should have done or could have done just i've got this like they i've got this feeling i mean i don't want to go through it really i'm kind of scared shitless to go through it but i know what to do same with what you're doing with knowing your nurse practice act like nobody wants to get in trouble nobody wants to go to deposition, nobody, but if you know your legal rights, the standard of care that you're supposed to deliver, if you know your nurse practice act, at least you can have the confidence and not be like bewildered. Like, what do I do? I, I, I don't even know if I did something wrong. Well, if you know your nurse practice act, then you do know, you know, what you're, uh, what you're entitled to do, what you're responsible for doing, you know, entitled to get responsible to do, you know, all that stuff. And at least you have that confidence and not the bewilderment and the vulnerability and all that. And that is something very similar, different expressions of the same desire for nurses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm in, my, in my mind, what you were speaking, Karen, and in, in waiting to hear from you, Maggie, is this, this term called failure to rescue. There's got to be legality behind training that's provided, been provided. They've been signed off on their competency, that they have skills code skills. We'll talk about, you know, my particular topic. We have a BLS card. 
Now we're in a room and we don't get compressions in one minute. We don't shock within two. We scramble and, you know, like I always say, the birds on the bottom of the cage. We wait for rapid response to show up three, five, seven, nine, 12 minutes later. They're on their second code. Okay, now they're here. There must be responsibility on someone's back when that goes wrong. There is. Whose is it, Maggie? Do tell. So I can tell you that the last case that I testified in last, not this last February, but the February before last, a code was involved. And so you know what was on the big screen? At a, in a civil case, there wasn't a jury involved. It was the code sheet. And you know what was not done? It was so done poorly. No chat boxes. You know, you and I, everyone here knows they were bagging a patient. We can see it. We can see the code, but they can't. And so do you think it was checked that the, but they were bagging the patient? So you know the expert in their report, I can't say you were bagging the patient. I can't make that up. That's, I, that's me lying. Now I can say what I'm testifying on my report that I can say to that, yes, I can, you know, standard of care would have been, or in my experience, but if it's not charted, you didn't do it. And it was simple stuff like that. They didn't check a blood sugar. This was a diabetic patient in MRI. MRI, what should you be thinking? Sedation. No one uses all... No one talks about Razacon. They sure build the patient for Mazicon, which again is another slap on the face. The patient got billed for a drug that they never even got. And that again is on the big screen. The code sheet was there, the poor documentation. Now is reflective of maybe you. The jury doesn't get to see maybe you. And now they see this Mickey Mouse. And the, the, the other side has already painted you as poor providers. Yeah, this is the first time we've started with charting, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah but it's good. I love it. <laughs> We need to go down dive right in. Wait, didn't wasn't there a, a paper towel up there on the screen with all the notes, all the documentation? Like, come on. Well, that's the so thing that was I missing. So when I teach, a, when I would teach an ACLS, I would tell people, and of course, they think that I'm sometimes ridiculous. But I'm like, do not take when you're the the documenter. That's not a job you should be taking lightly. Like, don't let other your that's your job. That's why we each have a different job. Take it very seriously. And yes, you're going to have to ask you, what's your name? I don't know your name. There may be people responding to a code that you don't know their name. Or when things have calmed down, then you still have to go to them as the documenter and say, hey, I'm sorry, what was your name again? I know, I know you were here. Because other people are doing other tasks. That's your job. Take it seriously. That is a big deal because if nothing else happens, but if it does, and now it's on the big screen. So Maggie, I think what you're saying is really important in this conversation, because what I'm hearing you say is if you're in a code and you're the documenter as, as, as the example, you better know what you're doing. You, and, and if you're not getting it from your hospital, you're still on the line. And so I'm hearing in the background, know your, your scope of practice, know what you're supposed to know. Now it doesn't, it should it should fall on the organization, but as we know in code, it oftentimes doesn't, right? So I think to your point, like up on a on a screen in a trial is, whoops, you didn't know how to document. Who's who is that on, right? So I I I like how you frame that because I think in this conversation, I'm curious to see what Susan says about that. Well, you know, I it, I think we could talk the next six hours on code documentation or nursing documentation at all. Code documentation, however, is and has been, again, since the beginning of time, such a nightmare. I'm, I'm working on a case right now where the code sheet doesn't match the defibrillator, which doesn't match the physician's notes. Not, not like the drugs are different. The dosages are different. The timing of everything is there's nothing on there. And then, and then each of the other sheets say refer to the physician's sheet, which I feel like he wrote after the fact. <laughs> so you want to talk about a hot mess, but we digress because fixing code charting, I'm not going to say I'm not taking it on, but when I was requested and created code prep, it was Susan, could you just get them to do compressions before we walk in the door? And I was like, yeah, this is so silly. You're right. How, how come we can't? Where did our training go wrong, Maggie? Where did our training go wrong that we are not sure if we should? Should we? Should we? We hesitate because of the hierarchy, because of our relationships in the hospital, because of 
Are we scared because we're not sure? Because we're sure, sure that someone else around here probably has done it more than we have and knows better than we do. So we're not going to, we won't, we wouldn't dare get in the way and we wouldn't dare do it wrong. So let's bring it back around to the mindset, which is our, which is the opening module in code prep. The modules are mindset. So we'll, we'll, we'll circle around back to that. The second one is visual acuity, which is a triage system that I created because we like to say the best cardiac arrest is the one we prevented. So what are we doing to prevent it? How to catch the signs and symptoms of deterioration before the, you know, tank moment, our emergency equipment. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Are you afraid of it? You know, there's a huge amount of fear around that darn defibrillator. You hear that charging sound and everyone falls out. <laughs> they just fall out. And then rescuer one, two, and three. What are the job of one, two, and three? Who is rescuer one, two, and three? People have, uh, hospital systems have code roles, right? And everyone, I'm the, I'm the runner. I'm the rescuer one. I'm the compressor. What happens when they're, you know, out to lunch or off the floor? So in code prep, rescuer one, two, and three is everybody. So back to mindset. What do you think about when you think of code blue training for yourself as a, as a nurse? Um, and any example you want to give or how you feel about that? I definitely feel like I've evolved as a new ICU nurse. I was scared, but no, don't go to operation. And then ACLS was just so intimidating. It's like you went into this room by yourself with these scary people who asked you questions that you were never going to have the answers to. It, so it, it has got, it was very intimidating. I feel like early on, I feel like it's gotten way better, maybe a little bit too lax. And I do feel like as I, I've gotten more experience and as I have moved around into different settings like the ER, because I have seen code after code that I feel like I've gotten more comfortable. A code in the ER is different than a code in the ICU and a code in the cath lab or the PACU. So I've seen different codes in different settings. So I feel like I have a better comfort level for sure. Being in the cath lab, that put me on a different, I feel like comfort level I don't know why, just because I was with, I feel like a bunch of just competent people and a small, you know, everyone kind of knew their place and as a team just worked more cohesively. I felt like uh, we already have pads on a patient. We already have things in place that also help aid that. So I already have it up to 300. Anyone who comes into the cath lab, they're getting defat pads on. That's just part of our protocol. So it's just a little bit more controlled of a setting. Uh, and I was more comfortable with those drugs. So I do feel like my practice has evolved. I do think that people are generally scared. I mean, I remember the first time I was a newer nurse, I was pregnant, you know, getting up on the bed and doing, you know, compressions for what seemed like way too long uh, before someone came to relieve me. Because I, again, in a small ICU, I didn't think that people were comfortable. I don't think that people are generally comfortable responding to a code, even physicians. I mean, I've walked in, I've done interventional radiology, went to go check on one of my friends, you know, just one of the other coworkers. She sent me my really good friend. The door opens because there are lead walls and I hear her screaming at him and he's just standing there. She's coding the patient and I'm like, go get the crash cart. And I immediately move over to her to start helping her, but I'm directing him, an interventional radiologist. I just feel like that they're not. And, and you know, as teaching, I taught at Baylor. So I taught the students, the med students, everyone comes, respiratory therapy, other nurses, all the disciplines come and you would see them on a code and it's it would be scary. The biggest thing that I think the deep fib is what people are the most scared of, pacing someone, you ask them, they don't, they can't. Or to offload a charge, ask right now, you ask 10 nurses how to do that, I guarantee you. And that's something that I learned in EP. Because again, we'll load a charge if they're gonna pace someone and we need to pace them out of that rhythm. So now we don't, they were successful, the, they were able to take them out of it. Now dump the, the charge. And I've seen them deploy it into the patient and the EP doctor lose their mind. And rightfully so, right? In that setting as well, I've seen two defense hooked up to a patient. And then you're supposed to synchronize. So other point being is that I feel like nurses as well need to leave one setting. I think that the more that you move around, and that's of course me, you know, as a critical care nurse, the more that you move around and that you're comfortable and that you touch things, because my comfort level did come from doing it repetitively, being more comfortable with my skills and the drugs, for sure. 
Maggie, how often did you, how often did you get to practice in or how often, yeah, what was the practice like? I mean, you did it over um, and over again in those critical care areas, but did, did you see that people were getting adequate training? No, it's the every two years, like everyone else. Actually, they implemented, implementing something new at Baylor where I think it was like every quarter, yes. You would go, there was a machine hooked up somewhere on the second floor <laughs> to a couple of dummies. You had to make sure you did your test first and then you checked your box off by doing that. So, so I believe so that's what we're doing. Yeah, Maggie, you're you're referring to RQI. That's the American Heart Association yes. and Laridol. They have the RQI program, which stands for yes. Resuscitation Quality Improvement. And, and this is something that similar to the conversation we had right before we push record on, on, on this call would be, would be an area that I could weigh in quite heavily uh, on the, on the efficacy of that program from our, from the giants, from the giants yeah. in our world, from the giants of the resuscitation science, the best, that is their recommendation. So, so that is the recommendation. They are, they're going to take the course at home online in your jammies, and then you're going to come to a self-directed mannequin connected to a computer where the avatar will be your rescuer number two, where you practice compressions that are very difficult compressions, but I like it. Good feedback, good feedback and airway, which we all know how good everybody is at airway. If you're not a respiratory therapist, I would, you know, based on what you were talking about, your experience is amazing. You, you are a critical care rock star prior to your legal stuff and or during your, your, your legal learning. But I also, so I, I would like to pinpoint something that you said that stood out for me. And that is, no matter what your experience is, and here you are giving all these advanced techniques. However, you're still not that you, them in that area, all that in a bag of chips, right? It doesn't matter how much experience you have or how good you are, physician, dual defibrillating, dumping charges, those are advanced skills. But if you know, if you don't practice it and you have, okay, let's say you're the one and it same goes back to recording. There's usually the same person takes that same job, regardless of your, of your area of expertise. There'll be like two crackheads. I call them in the ER. They run to every code or in the, in the ICU. And then everyone's like, like, listen, I'll watch all of your patients all day long. I'm good. In the cath lab team, you guys are in there causing cardiac arrest. So it's just like, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, again, did you guys, I said no pepperoni. Yeah. 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 All code, you know, blah, blah, blah. But still you know, if you don't practice it. And that's the whole, that's a whole big, big deal that we're talking about here. And, and in the same case that I'm referring to you guys with the one that had all the different documentation, none of them matched. The one of the questions was, so do you guys practice mock codes? And they, they said, well, yeah, we have to do a mega code every two years in our class. And I was like, oh, brother, did you just say that? <laughs> hey, Maggie, from a, from a legal standpoint, do you know, kind of like, what, you know, I haven't, I, I have not memorized my nursing scope of practice. Every time I see you, I'm like, oh, better get back on that document. <laughs> but, but like from a legal perspective, what does that look like? You know, what is my responsibility as a nurse in a code? Sure. So when you say legally, so you know, there's civil criminal administrative. So a okay. nurse is 98% more likely to stand in front of the border nursing than she is civil criminal. Okay. Even though we're hearing all these cases in the law and and the you know in the media, <clears throat> but when a patient codes, you're more likely or and if they die, you're more likely to stand in front of any of these courts, right? You understand that statistically speaking, if there's a bad outcome and a patient loses a leg, a patient dies, there's a code that's probably going to be under microscope. So what is your responsibility? You know, you're showing up as what the primary nurse or you're part of the code team either okay so you're the primary nurse so let's just talk about this nurse that this is this is a civil case that's already resolved so i can speak about this the primary nurse was the one who gave an ampa d50 to the patient and then two milligrams of ativan took them off the monitor down to the mri scanner where within the next seven to ten minutes a code blue was being called people were running down to the to the code to the MRI scanner where the MRI techs recognized that he was not responsive but failed to initiate CPR. And because I'm an ACL instructor, BLS instructor, I was able to opine in this case, not on their scope of practice, but of their failure to respond to an unresponsive patient, which they don't. They literally, and under oath, they both say they never do anything. They pull them off, 
they pull them out, they get them onto the stretcher, move them out into the inner room, into the little ante room, and they literally wait for the code team. Neither one of them initiate basic life support. That's not defendable. The hospital had to write a check because that's not defendable conduct. So now they're negligent. And now you're just showing a whole system negligent. And that's what the attorney wants. So now check the, uh, not only did the nurse not do what she was supposed to do. Now we have the MRI techs who did not, who also failed to respond. So what was the responsibility of the primary nurse? A, to get an order to take the patient off the monitor to go down to MRI, not to send an unstable patient off the floor with a blood sugar you're chasing. And this is a stat MRI. Why are you sending this man anywhere? What, what, why are you doing that? And then to give a benzodiazepine to a patient to go off the floor. So she had a lot of responsibility. So <clears throat> failure to respond is, is important to know. How many nurses do you think know that? They, not many, not a lot realize that that can end you up. And now at the board of nursing, if you go, if it's a civil case, you have more of a chance. If it's the board of nursing, and that's, you all know, that's why I'm here. Good luck. <laughs> Let me know how that works out. So I'll be here. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I can't, you can't defend that. And now the code is people run into the code. If I, I'm part of that code team, AI I look down, he's brown. His last name, again, I'm thinking diabetic. He's how old? They got him up on a wedge. You can't even lay flat. So all these things are going through my mind as a critical care nurse because they do have to put him straight up again. He's unresponsive. He's down an MRI. What do we give down an MRI? Benzodiazepines. So you and none of that happens. The coach, he's not felt, as, felt out poorly. They're not bagging him. It doesn't show that they're providing any supplemental you know, oxygenation. There's no monitor on him. When they do get a monitor, shocker, he's in. PEA. And so he died. So you have all this, this uh, perspective because of your, your background and experience. The, the hamburger, the people in the middle aren't going to. And is that even part of their nurse practice to act to like think uh, like I've, I've been places where, you know, the sats are in the seventies and the patient's not even on oxygen because the nurse is waiting for someone to tell them to put the patient on oxygen. But you do that on your own in ICU and ER. You you see a SAT or you see a color and you just automatically, because that's how you respond to that. But if you're not used to it, you don't. Then under BLS, but, you're allowed to do that. So I guess this is my question. Is the nurse who is not trained, I guess, number one, you need to get trained if you're not. But what are they legally obligated to do? Failure to respond. Like if the patient is unresponsive and you do nothing, that's kind of like, I guess that would probably wouldn't be even written into the practice act because that's kind of common well, sense. Go ahead, Susan. Yeah. So my, the question, the, the question prevails, you know, you, you said, Maggie, they have BLS. Well, that's the answer. Is that the legal answer? Is that the, is that the safety net that a hospital has that says, we know we made sure she had a, a provider card that was current and there's her training. So, so although, so if, if American Heart Association says that once every two years, although they do say, and they have since, since the eighties, they recommend it every two years, but they, there is a statement every year, every five years when they do their updates that says that two years is too long. And there's research out there that says, you know, they lose the, the knowledge from the class as early as three weeks, one month, three months, six months. It's proven since the beginning of time, but legally if the training that's been provided, that nurse has a BLS card and then doesn't do the basic, which is why I'm such a craziness about BLS, because we, we skip it all the time. She didn't recognize the problem, or then maybe they did. Did they call for help? Maybe so. They did not initiate compressions and use electricity. So is the safety net the hospital can say they have their BLS? That's the requirement. So now it wouldn't it's just... It, it wouldn't have just it, it it wouldn't just be the basic BLS because there's education there's an order to start you know initiate oxygen if SATs are less than ninety two percent there will be evidence based science that will be pulled in and just like you said either expert can use that data like you said either way they want to in their report so that door could swing either way now it was risk management that came that was defending the the code sheet 
And again, I don't doubt that those they did everything that they could. But when you when there's an expert call, you can't ask them to lie for you. You can't ask them to you know to say yes, they were doing it when that's not what the documentation says. The documentation does not say that you were bagging the patient, but we all know because again, that expert also will be cross-examined and will be said, so you're saying that they didn't wear a bag of the patient. Have you seen that? And the nurse would have to say, no, of course I have. So that, that brings me back to the second topic then of early warning. So in the code prep system, because we, I know, and I researched all over whatever, blah, blah, that many systems use early warning systems. They're computerized, they're in the EMR, EHR, whatever you want to say. And my conclusion is they're only as good as the information that's fastidiously inputted into them. Uh, yeah, they're getting more advanced and they, 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 they draw from labs, they draw from vitals if they happen to be, you can pull them in and so forth. But in all actuality, and, and again, that lies right on the nurse's back, just the nurse, not all the other people that are on the floor, right, that are looking at patients every day, just the nurse. So in code prep, I used my pre-medic, uh, pre-hospital, sorry, brain and put together a visual acuity scale, green, yellow, red, sick or not sick. Really, really, really drawing in on that word acuity. I think our country's gone crazy. I think nurses have gotten crazy with the word acuity. Acuity means sick or not sick. I am not comfortable with people using the word acuity for staffing and for room assignments based on the number of tasks that a nurse may or may not have in the hamburger of the hospital, right? Lots of tasking equals a higher acuity. That Why are we teaching that? They, they, they We already know that their brain in the hamburger doesn't work the same as critical care brains. Critical care buns are always thinking sick or not sick. That means vitals are Q5. That means to, to Karen's, we automatically, oh, the breathing looks bad. Oxygen, like we do it. But in the hamburger, if we're talking about acuity as the number of tasks, I feel that their brain is a kind of an off mode for that sick or not sick. So legality, here we go. We missed the signs and symptoms of deterioration. We know patients show signs 24, 8, three hours prior. Absolutely. So we miss it. Now, now, now we're now we're having an arrest. So going upstream to the legality of missing the signs and symptoms of deterioration, and we know there's a million reasons why. But once again, is the training from our basic advanced and pediatric life support enough for us to catch the early signs of deterioration prior to arrest? I don't think so. Not with staffing. I mean, the sick, the patients are sicker and sicker and sicker. The responsibilities of these nurses is outrageous. They come into me. I mean, a nurse was just like, I got written up by management because I didn't have my CHG wipe done in, you know, it was on, you know, 12 hours and 15 minutes. Well, I mean, how could you, how, how dare you? I mean, some of these tasks are just so ridiculous. You're so weighed down. And so when the nurses really, if a nurse unfortunately takes on an unsafe assignment, that could put you in a bad situation. And I know staffing is, I'm with you. It should not be based on some crazy number. When people talk about acuity, do we really know what that means? And when people are making assignments or basing staffing off of that, based on on what? You know, and they're using a term that, that you know, they think that they know how to use. And so nurses are being tasked more and more and more. And so when someone fails to respond or fails to, you know, use the chain of command, those are all, those are all real th things for a nurse. I, it's obviously the one percenters that come to me. I've seen not nearly, I've seen more administrative than I have civilly. Administratively is more I'm concerned about because that will affect, a, that can affect a nurse's livelihood, which is their ability to work. So if a nurse you know, fail to respond, you pray when you stand in front of the board of nursing that you have someone like myself who will help you put the, the map on the big screen to say, hey, you know, I had 12 patients and I would have had six. And that just pray that the board of nursing is, you know, we'll see what that means. But physicians are roped into that as well, for sure. Andrew. I think that's just a really good point that if, if you're going to get called to administrative action, for failure to respond or for failure to, you know, use your, your warning system, you know, then you better be darn sure as, as a nurse that you know what to do, because if you don't, 
Yeah. If you don't see them though, because you're you saw them twice in an eight-hour shift because you have twelve patients. That's you know you can't even implement, you know, green, yellow, red, because you're not looking at them, Susan. Well, just to add on, we we've talked about this like three out of five of the chats we've done, but I really think that acuity thing. I keep hearing fragility, you know, like instead of acuity, fragility, and you can have. I don't know if the acuity level belongs under the fragility level or fragility. Like you could have all these tasks and then it's level of fragility. And if it's a yellow or a red, well, then that nurse has to have less patience. It's not about the tasks. It's about how often they have to go look if they're sick or not sick. You know, but who are we to change? (laughs) Would you quit all that common sense junk? (laughs) Wow. Well, and, and to your point, right, this is exactly why the visual acuity scale and co-prep is for everybody, <laughs> clinical and non-clinical. It's, it's, you can tell by looking at somebody if they look like they're sick or not. And so we use RPMs, respiration perfusion, perfusion, sorry, and mental status. And it's honestly thumbs up or thumbs down. This is an across the room assessment, 10 seconds or less. Housekeeping, nutritional services, PT, OT. Case management, everybody has this 10 minute module on the fluctuation and possible high, you know, red to a green and a green to a red, yellow in, in seconds. But how can the nurse possibly be responsible by herself? So, so the visual acuity and co-prep is for the wing man, wing woman, wing team. It takes a community to save a life. The European Resuscitation Union stands by there. It takes a system to save a life, systems saving lives. Yes, bravo, European Resuscitation Union. I'm with them on that. So that's that's the that's the whole nine yards on not leaving the, uh, the nurse by herself in her 12, 6, 8, 10 patients. Acuity because we have 85 tasks in one room and we can't even get to the next room. God forbid one of them codes in room one. Well, who's going to do my other 12? So anyway, nightmare on Elm Street there, but <laughs> we, we know that. <laughs> So, so that moves into the next one. And you touched on this, Maggie, is that fear of the equipment and the handling of the, of the equipment. And in code prep, we teach literally the one, two, three, step one, step two, step three. You don't have to be a rhythms expert. You don't have to know the rhythms because the machine does. So there's a little button on that machine called, the, called the analyze function. And in code prep, everybody learns the analyze function by pushing the analyze function. Step two, one, turn it on. Step two, analyze our charge. In my world, everybody pushes analyze. And then step three, if it's a shockable rhythm, when it glows red, glows orange, red, whatever the color is, you clear and push the button. I can't tell you how often I have to yell, push the button. So I'll get my, I'll get my buns. They're like, we're going to use the analyze function. Oh my God. I'm like, yeah, listen, you've got two, four minutes. Just show me you got this. And then, you know, and then we'll go right on because of those who, you know, you guys, then you're all that bag of chips. I know you are. So that's cool. Show me. And then we'll do things like pre-charge our defib and, and, and remove that charge if we're not going to need it. We can do bonus round of compressions while we're while we're charging. But you can't dare bring that stuff in early because I'll tell you what, there'll be no bonus rounding. The pads will be on like this. And it, it, it's like, oh, my goodness. So I can't tell you how many times ICU teams just yesterday, ICU team, push the button, push the button, push the button, the glowing orange one, push the button. They're like my ICU team. They're like. Well, we, we, you know, we, we need to get into the drugs. I'm like, mm-hmm. But this so, level of jewels doesn't work with that kind of bundle branch block and it's a third degree block and you don't use atropine in that case. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, and I, I even teach Maggie the, you know, you've got the random physician in the room, like the case you were describing and everyone, the, the nurse is running the show and I'm like, oops, whoops, we pushed the butt. Oops. <laughs> no harm, no foul. Uh, you know? Oh, it's a shockable rhythm. Everybody clear. We got this. Push the button back on compressions, ordering pizza again. So it, it shouldn't be, you know, so handling the emergency equipment. You worked in areas where they handle it all the time. But, you know, I, I worked in emergency and trauma and, and cardiac stuff. I never knew the analyze function existed. So that's a big thing um, on your emergency equipment. What's your take on that? You feel like, I mean, we know the answer, don't we, Maggie? But how often do people oh, get no. to use their cart? Yeah, no, I, I don't know that I only know this because I taught ACLS, but I didn't know that before I was an instructor. I didn't know that that really was a thing. 
And then it's like a little bit of an ego thing, which I talk about, which we got to put down. That has to stop. That I'm so tired of that. That needs to end. So part of it is like, oh, I can interpret it. Oh, okay, uh-huh. whatever. It's just not appropriate. So I see that depending on where you're at and the hierarchy, whether they'll use uh -oh. those tools. or I definitely feel way more comfortable doing cath lab in EP with rhythms, with conduction, you know, also with perfusion because cath lab is plumbing, right? There's blockages. So I feel comfortable with that. And then conduction or the electrician. So I work with plumbers and electricians. So I feel comfortable with those two. So I feel more comfortable with the equipment and we would have to charge all the time or you're putting in a, a ICD, a defibrillator, you do have to load up a charge. And it was like one of those first times, like when I saw a nurse do it, deploy a charge and she wasn't supposed to, oh, you can be real for sure. I introduced myself to how you offload that. So I would never do that again, because again, you don't know until you're there and you're there. Cause again, that sound is crazy. And everyone's like, you know, turn it off. And you're like, and the first thing that she did was touch the charge button and there it was. And everyone cringed. So <laughs> well, tell, for people who don't can't picture has never been in that situation. What happened when she didn't offload the charge and that ICD was connected to the patient's heart? Well, so the 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 physician was able to pace him out internally with the EP equipment out of the, the lethal rhythm so the patient wasn't did not have to be uh, shocked so we loaded up in case the internal equipment doesn't work so the internal equipment did was able or the patient doesn't come out of that rhythm so then the nurse needed to offload that charge and didn't and deployed it into the patient thankfully the patient did not have an, a bad outcome if he would have, thankfully, he was with the electrophysiologist in a place where they were, I mean, we could have based them out of just about anything, thankfully, but imagine it wasn't that setting. Yeah. That, that could have been that, bad. You know, that, that makes me think of, again, in the hamburger, I, I always wonder, as I started studying this, I always wonder where was the ingenuity of placing equipment, defibrillators, manual defibrillators on every floor, two or three of them, some floors, some hospitals in the basic life support hamburger of our hospital, but we have advanced equipment. Now I know some, some, some hospitals have AED defibrillators in those areas. Many do not. Some have one random floor has an AED defibrillator, all the rest of So uh, in the middle of the hamburger, everybody's BLS trained. There might be one ACLS person in the unit, a charge or a supervisor. So then I get, again, I'm just wondering at the, the, the ingenious idea that someone had to put all these advanced cardiac life support pieces of equipment in our basic life support areas. And then we wonder why it's not used and why there's fear. Is that, is that, I wonder, is that, is that really far-fetched so, guys? Well, what would your, your suggestion just to have Maybe you still, I mean, if, if you want the capability of running a full code on the floor, or are you suggesting just have BLS and then wheel them up to the ICU doing BLS until you get to a crash cart? I'm you, suggesting make a big stink on the analyze button. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going yeah. to put the advanced equipment everywhere, make sure that everyone has been exposed to and has the training to use it. And to turn it into a piece of BLS equipment, which means they are not waiting for the superheroes to arrive. They're not waiting for the physician to shock. They're not waiting. If you can, again, you know, my platform here, if you can shock in the mall or an airport, you can be a 10-year-old kid. You darn sure should be able to do it in the hospital by trained healthcare personnel. So I'm saying put the equipment there, but make sure they have the training to use it. Yeah. I, Maggie, this is for you. You just reminded me, Susan. So we've talked about this on a couple of these calls that the nurses in the middle of the bun will like what you were saying about the guy in, down in MRI, you know, something's wrong. You've called for help, but you don't start compressions because you're waiting for the doctor to tell you it's okay. You don't hook up the thing, or maybe you hook it up, but you don't push the button because you're waiting for the doctor or the code team to come. What is the nurse's actual is, is there one, is there a legal obligation for them to, because they're BLS trained? I think we're covering this in yet another, another angle. The nurse who's waiting for the doctor, are they going against their practice act instead of just initiating CPR and using the electricity before the doctor gets there? Like, I want every nurse to be really clear that you have Susan's permission. Uh, you have 
the permission to not wait for the doctor. That's a cultural thing. But you are trained, start compressions, use your electricity, then start compressions again until they get there. Am I correct? Like that's their legal practice obligation, correct? Duty. Keep saying the word duty. Duty. Duty, duty, duty. When you have a professional license, the word is duty and they will smack you down with that duty. Yes, you do have a duty. And you are bound to because you learned BLS. And under testimony, the both the MRI techs, one had to say that she had taken BLS 22 times. The other one had to say that she took it like 11 times. And I think that's really important for nurses to hear. It is their duty. They don't have to wait for a doctor. I mean, we're so stuck in this hierarchy of the doctor gives the orders. You're going to get in trouble if you don't wait for the doctor. Oh, it's just maddening. And that it is their duty as a nurse to initiate CPR, especially I think if they've had BLS, I mean, I don't know what it is if they have, what nurse isn't BLS trained, right? I think you have to have it to yeah. be a nurse in a hospital. So Susan. Yes, everybody in healthcare, if you're in healthcare in any manner, you have to have basic life support in any form of healthcare. And you can't even be a student in anything in healthcare, a student of the health professions, dental, radiology, all of them, respiratory, CNA, everybody has to have basic life support. So, yeah, and, and Andra said, you don't have to wait for the doctor. But according to you and Maggie, it's like, you must not wait for the doctor. So, yeah. So, so when I go back in the day, I call it um, up, up until very recently, in fact, I call it, you know, I've been code prepping in dark alleys because I kind of had permission to be there, but not so much. And they were like, how are you doing that? I was like, well, they call me and they ask me for it. And then I go there and we do it. <laughs> and they're like, so how did you, I'm like, listen, I'm sick of waiting. They asked me for it. Like they literally passionate um, managers, supervisors, even staff. So I'm like, can you please come in and train my teams? So I'm like, yep, I'm on my way. So to cover my backside, I would always call risk management. And I would say, hello, risk management. This is Susan, the rescue RN. I'm coming in to train some of your team members. I will be teaching to use the analyze function. What's your take on that, kids? And they say, oh, well, is it the standard of care? I said, yes, it is. So it's the standard of care, pushing the analyze button. I said, yes, it's in every BLS video. It sure is. They said, well, as long as it's the standard of care and the people you're training have been exposed to the training and have been on our, have been signed off. So a competency has been done, which is a BLS card, yes or no, right? If they have a provider card that from the American Heart Association or Red Cross or, or wherever that is current, then there you go. So I'm like, okay. And then I would say again to when I got to the floor, I said, now I've checked with risk management. I want you to check on your side as long as your director approves and you check with risk management because we will be pushing the analyze function, which means we will be shocking before anybody else gets there. Because when we practice, we do it in a minute and a half or less again and again and again and again. So there's your duty. 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 Yeah, and usually those machines, do the machines, I guess they don't do like what the AED machines do on the crash cards. Well, not all of them, but there's even a little guy that comes up that says, uh, continue compressions. It does. It does. Karen, when you you push the analyze function, it turns it into AED. It'll say, begin compressions. Faster, deeper. It'll give you feedback. Then it depends on what type of defibrillator you're using, what type of feedback, what type of pads you're using, what type of feedback you get. But it will. And then it will say, analyzing patient, clear the patient. And then it'll be charging, charging. Whoop, and then it's, that's the part when everyone falls out. Shock advise, shock, continue compressions. It will talk there you through you it. And then two minutes later, it'll do it again. So when my teams do this, we shock on average. It, if, if it's a shockable rhythm, they'll shock twice before critical care outreach or rep- response arrives. Dr. Roboto. <laughs> Duty. And it, it's, do, it's so, your duty. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're getting close to wrapping it up. And, and I'll wrap it up with, with the um, ultimate rescuer one, two, and three, right? Because uh, we know that there's a lot of discussion around the country. Who does, who's going to do what? Who's on first? Who are we waiting for? Who's in charge of this whole nine yards? And uh, that's why we created code rules. Tons of research and evidence-based uh, practice around code rules. Do code rules work? Yes, they do. 
They work for many, they, they work for many, uh, in, in many ways. I, mean, I think one of the predominant things that stand out to me from my reading of the research is that it really cuts down on that crazy traffic, right? There's lots of traffic, lots of noise, no one can hear. That seems to be one of the big things, but I always kind of wanted to call bull study on that because if you, again, we mentioned this earlier, if you, if you, if you ain't around and your badge is needed, then what? We're going to wait. So, so when I'm asked who is rescue one, two, and three, because we have code rules, as you know, Susan, in our asset, that's wonderful. I love your code rules. Code prep comes before your code rules. Code prep is before you get there. So who is rescue one, two, and three? Everybody. Everybody that has basic life support is rescue one, two, and three. Rescuer one, you find the patient, you're up. You call for help. How do you call for help? You holler. Begin your jam up compressions. Not just any kind of compressions. Jam up, save the brain's kind of compressions, right? Rescuer two, you're the closest to that person. Your first job is eyes on the prize. With rescuer one, you are the CPR coach. They're going too fast. They're going too slow. They're doing it over the rail. They got pillows and junk in the way. Clear the room. Rescuer three is the closest one to that crash cart. You grab it, you bring it to the room. You coordinate with rescue two to roll that patient, place your pads, backboard, compressions get better, brains get saved, dunsies. Now, when uh, a hospital staff show up with their badges on, if the role they have is not being done when they get there, well, then do it. Everybody's happy. We've done our BLS for the first two to six minutes. It might be nine minutes. It might be 12 minutes until they arrive. That's the whole story I have for rescue one, two, and three. So any thoughts on code roles or have you experienced code roles and or, I mean, are you down with the whole, if you find the person you're up, let's let's do Le this. Legal pitfalls of code roles. No, I think that's, that you have to, because it gets too disorganized and people have to be comfortable with communicating to say, you know, and just be taught that. Like it, these, ha these are in place for a reason. It's the same with like active duty, right? I mean, people have roles for a reason. People die when people don't have roles. You need to have clear, concise roles. So I, I, I'm all about it. And the quicker that you're doing that, and someone, just like you said, let's get the crash card in here. Let's get the deep pads on the patient. Let's start moving. I see that even in, you know, it's when, honestly, I've been to like the units where they're not, seen as many codes like the med surge floor or, or labor and delivery where there's just a lot of disorganization because they're not used to like you're walking in the room and they're like okay go and i'm like wait what, what nothing's on the patient nothing's and i'm like can you at least go get the crash cart you know what i mean as i'm going over to do to, to do compressions so i i think that Everything you're saying is spot on. If we don't give people the tools and they want to learn, nurses want to. Anyone, we're all, everyone is sweating. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do if there's a code? Like, okay, am I going to be comfortable with that? Everyone sweats every two years. Like, oh my gosh, we have to take that test. You know, it's like crazy. You know, when just like you said, be comfortable with using the analyze button. And like you, when I was teaching LPNs and we went into the rehab facility, that's the first thing that I did. They're like, are you going to touch the defib? I said, I am. And I'm going to teach you how to touch it. I was like, don't be scared of this. Look at this. It has analyze. You know, you, you're going to be, you're going to know how to do this. It's going to be fine. You will going to pull this into the room. And I just taught them how to like even touch the equipment. And if you're not comfortable, like we led with part of your job as a professional nurse is to say, I don't know how to do something and to own it, to say, I need some more education, or I don't get this, or I don't understand this. Now, there is a difference between not knowing what you don't know and then not asking for what you need, which as a, as a professional, I do feel like that is part of your responsibility. Like, okay, you're off orientation in a busy ICU after 12 weeks, bye. Well, no, you need to come to the table and say, wait, okay, so I've never seen X, Y, Z, you know, so I need to make sure that I'm getting my orientation. And a part of that is I need to make sure that I understand rhythms and I understand the crash cart and what that means and what's like a rhythm that you think I would be shocking, right? And and be comfortable with that. Like, show me how to touch the, the biggest thing that I find that nurses have a problem with is pacing. You start talking about pacing and they are... Process. You know what? Again? I think if we added the word porn after all of this, instead of training, like pacing porn code blue porn you know acls porn it, it, in the training things like oh i think i think everybody would be like experts i think that would solve everything just call it all code blue porn <laughs> I, 
I'm willing to try anything, you know, the, 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 uh, the visual on that works for me. <laughs> I mean, everybody would get into that. You guys going into code blue porn today? <laughs> oh my gosh. I haven't done it since like for two years, but I can't wait to go again. <laughs> Ever since they changed the name of that, like, I can't wait to go. <laughs> But I do think, Maggie, that what you're saying is also really important, that that whole piece about is is your responsibility to ask for what you need. Because, you know, in nursing, so often we don't because we're afraid that somebody's going to humiliate us, make us look dumb, you know, any of those reasons, or you're just a little nurse and the doctor is, you know, this God on a pedestal. And, and I think it really like hurts our profession that we aren't that we don't feel empowered to stand up and say, A, I'm afraid to do a code because I haven't done one in 10 years at even a mock code. And B, we need more training and, you know, and just say what you need. I think we would. Yeah, no, that's got me crazy now. I got this whole other thought, Maggie, for you, because I'm wondering, okay, so I wonder what the liability is on the hospital when nurses, remember I started at the very beginning by saying Code Blue practice is the number one most requested educational intervention by nurses. So now what, where does that fall if they keep requesting it and the hospital doesn't provide it? I mean, that's what they need. They say what they need. I did a survey just recently and I was like a hundred plus leaders came back with a response. Uh, do we, our questions basically, would you like, do you think we need code drills in your area? And 85% came back, 85%, yes, ASAP, ASAP. And then, you know, the system doesn't respond. Yeah. So yeah, whose responsibility? Where, Am I supposed to go out and get my own damn BLS over and over again? Or is the hospital, you know, liable for not providing training? Adequate well, training. You guys already know all that answer, right? I mean, you know, the hospital association lobby against us. So uh, this Come is all there. rhetorical, but I'm sure I'll, I'll entertain you. Entertain I, me. I mean, it's, it's, it is not, the, unless who, unless you tell. So you would be a great expert. So for that nurse that say she got caught up in one of these civil criminal administrative cases who was saying I wasn't trained and you're willing to write those words down to say what she's saying is valid. But if you're not willing to do that, they don't even know to seek you out or even know that they have this deficiency, which as an expert, I may not know that this expert Z may not know that, but these hospital associations, again, I have many, you know, my problems, because again, just as you come along in nursing, is that the hospitals lobby against us and why aren't they listening to nurses that's just one more that's evidence right there of that statistic of these nurses begging 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 for help and they keep ignoring them it's just another example it's another it's, slap on the face it's a non-issue every nurse needs to have the integrity to want to save a patient that goes into distress you know, I mean, any nurse that's like, well, I wasn't trained. Well, you probably shouldn't be a nurse. I mean, like if that's your, you know, if, if you're, you don't want to have the basic capability of starting compressions and saving somebody's life and you're going to pass the buck onto the hospital that didn't train you. I mean, like, how do you want to feel that way? Like when you go into work, do you want to feel that way? Like, I, I, I think, I don't know, maybe it's me and, and I don't think it's, maybe it's not every nurse, but to me, it's like, I, it's like, you got a booger on your face, you know, like you oh. can't, you can't like do basic compressions and call, call, like, do you want that on your soul? <laughs> I mean, like then, then what Susan asks is a non-issue, you know, is it who's liable for the lack of training? Well, even if the hospital is liable, do you want that for yourself? You know, do you, do you want to blame someone else? Cause you didn't save a patient that you could have. And so like hey, in the yeah. case that I referenced, the hospital case, it just showed growth. It just showed a, a more extensive negligence on the hospital and gave the family more money. Yeah. It just showed systemic incompetencies. It just was a poor reflection on the hospital. Why they even went even to trial, I don't know, but... But that, but Karen's point is so valid because if the hospital is not going to train us adequately on BLS, like again, to own our profession, it's on us, you know, no. and you don't want to walk home or go home from a shift thinking that you didn't know what you were doing. No nurse wants to. We've already talked to several who are like, you know, terrified to do codes because they're going to go home with their tail between their legs. So owning our profession 
and becoming empowered and sovereign from the system that's shitty yeah. is go and get your training and know what the heck you're doing. Yeah, and it's it's not the nurse's fault, this learned helplessness thing, because they're right. so used yeah. to being given everything. So if you don't feel like that yet, that's okay. That's why we're telling you. It's basic golden neural stuff. Would you want yourself or your family member to be taken care of by a nurse who didn't know basic life support or, or was too afraid to engage in it because they hadn't had the training? If the answer is no, then you should, you know, it's a golden rule. Be that for them what you want for yourself, you know, that's it. Oh, I, I agree, but there, I think that there are some nurses that are really afraid and, or yeah. they're afraid they're going to do it wrong. And I can just tell you my own experience as doing, you know, the first time I did CPR on a four-year-old and they didn't make it right. I was the primary nurse for that ER. Mm -hmm. And I think that people take away with them. Like, did I do it right? Did I push the right drugs? So mm -hmm. there's that as well. Some nurses. And then my dad, my mom died unexpectedly at 55 and my dad, my dad initiated CPR. You know, one of the first things that he was like telling me was like, how do I know I did it right? And I was like, stop. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I I'm like, not do that. Yeah. And I'm so not saying I think that. that I think ahead. that some nurses, again, if you're going into ICU or the ER stop, if you can't do chest compressions, probably where you shouldn't be going. Like maybe it's the clinic or you're doing something that you can do that kind of, you know, a hospice where that's probably less likely for you to do CPR. You're, so I do agree with that. But I do think that there is a piece of nurses, especially if once you've done it, they have like a hesitancy to want to respond, I think. And that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I honestly, to, to, sorry, Andra, you know, to, to wrap it up and, and, and Karen always comes around to that point and I'm with you on it. I, I know me personally, that gut wrenching fear, oh, hell no. I wasn't going to have that more. I did my first patient on my very first day uh, was cardiac arrest, but that gut wrenching gut fear, nope, not for me. So I went out and found it. I had to get more. And I teach this when I teach, you know, in, in my advanced life support classes, I'm like, listen, the, that one chapter we had on, um, you know, normal sinus rhythm in, in adult one, it ain't enough. If you have a curiosity, you have to go get more. Uh, where we work and how we perform in our, in our role is our calling card. So yes, but I also find uh, that that's the critical care brain that says, not, I'm not saying it, but in general, we yeah. seek and go towards things that we lean into that way, where the burger tends to be a little bit more tasking thought process and they're waiting for the permission they're waiting it's just who they are and, and, and i felt like we kind of in the critical care in the buns that's we have failed them by allow them to be kind of more robotic and more tasking and then we we're we they're feel put upon and, and we look we look at them like what the hell why didn't you go do this in your own but it's just a different type of mindset and so i feel like i am the permission for the hamburger this is i'm the permission and every other hamburger bun in the country better damn sure listen up because if you are a jerk and you're a bag of chips, give it up. That's the empowering thing, right? That's the empowering thing is for all those nurses in between, like if they can say, they can listen to this podcast and say, okay, the hospital really needs to train me and educate me. I'm not getting that. I'm going to go and get that and ask them and say it. But if they don't provide it, then I am going to find it myself. And when that response team comes in and I've already got this code, you know, started, I'm going to walk away feeling so empowered that I took care of my patient the way I knew I could, you know, yeah, I was terrified. Yeah. I mean, I'll be the first one to admit like our other OR nurse, it was terrifying to be in a code in, in the operating room I was in because we never got training, but I could just imagine in a med surge floor or OR, whatever that nurse who said it's my duty and I, and I, you know, I'm pissed that I'm not getting it. I'm pissed that I feel afraid. I'm going to go get it. And then that code team's going to come in and we're already going to have this party started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. when they walk in the room, the nurse is going to say, I got this. Go ahead and give report. Right. You should, my teams, by the time they do what they're doing, not only is there time for a, a, a pass off, a handoff, right? Like the red, I always say that the red carpet has been rolled out for critical care teams to arrive. Oh, they arrive. Compressions are happening. The scene's under control. There's time for a handoff. <laughs> And we say, we got this. They don't have, they don't come in there and say, get out of the way. Oh my God, get out of the way. No, uh-uh. Back up, Jack. We got this. <laughs> so cool. So, That's so empowering. Yeah. It is. Which is it why is. we're here. Maggie, you're so amazing yes. for joining us. Thank yes, you so thank you. much. Yeah. Thank you. And thank, thank you for thank what you're you. doing. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Keep teaching us. It. Keep teaching us. I, I do follow you and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know any of this stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, really. I, I appreciate it. All the time on TikTok. Maggie's but I'm like, only Maggie's animated and ridiculous because I don't want to. It's the one percenters, right? It's the ones calling me because they're not working. It's the ones that are sleeping in their cars. It's the ones that are standing in front of board and they've done nothing wrong or they just got their ankle bracelet off because they accepted an unsafe assignment. An angle bracelet. So those are the ones. So when I'm animated, it's because it's the one percenters. So I'd rather teach you what not to do than to help you and your legal team defend your conduct. I think, Maggie, what you do is super empowering for nurses. Like it just gives nurses this new view about about their profession and what what's their duty and what's not and I like it you're just super empowering and you deliver it with such common sense and irreverence <laughs> and humor and you don't even like it's like just natural just your natural way of being like come on do you really want me to take this assignment and break the you know break the nurse at practice I like do you really come on I'm here for you just you know you sign off on this that you're giving me we all have choices <laughs> choices choices I love it thank, thank you so you. much Maggie nailed it Renegades.